Hi, I'm Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast. This is a reminder that we're going on tour next summer. Yes, that's right. We're going on tour. The Living Undeterred U.S. Tour 2022. We're leaving on May 9th next summer. We're going to every state and we're raising a million dollars. That's the plan to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. We need your help though. I cannot do this alone. I know there's a lot of people out there interested in this uh, project of ours. You can go to our website, www.livingundeterred.com. We need volunteers. We need state partnerships. We need sponsors. We need as many people as we can to get out there and help those people that need help to change the narrative on mental health, substance abuse, and addiction. Again, go to livingundeterred.com and click on the Living Undetoured icon, and all the information is there. Again, thank you very much for the support, and as always, keep living undeterred. Welcome, this is Jeff Johnston, host of the Living Undeterred podcast, and I'm super excited to speak with John Samnick today from uh, Beverly Hills, California, correct? Yep. Had to get that right because you've been you've been around a few different places. So every once in a while, someone doesn't update their LinkedIn profile well enough. <laughs> um, but no, I'm excited to talk to you. I think uh, I met you on social media, like I met pretty much every guest. Uh, and the the name of your uh, organization or what you're passionate about is what kind of drug me in. And more than likely, we were probably involved in some mutual conversation with somebody that had a topic that was of interest to us. Um, but you, uh, you have a wide range of different uh, interests that I think we can... And I leave every show open, John. We don't have an agenda. We're going to talk for about an hour. Obviously, you know where I hang my hat, my passions with the mental health, substance abuse, and addiction world. But I'm open to anything that you want to talk about that can either, either empower people to make better choices on that side of the fence or things that you can bring to the table about just increasing overall well-being, which seems to be a a big problem today we have in, in society. So with that, I'm going to introduce John Samnick. And John, you go by the Pivot Coach. Tell me a little bit about what uh, that means and how did you come up with that name? So before I get into that, Jeff, it's great to see you. I interviewed you on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, and we were introduced by one of my mentors, David Essel, who I know has been a guest on your podcast. So I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. You bet. Uh, David, David's an awesome guy. I really learned a lot about codependency. Um, he talked a lot at length, and I know you and I did as well, about his, his uh, issue that that's the number one addiction that people have today. So um, I think as we navigate through, through my, my podcast, I would like to spend some time talking about your thoughts on that. And I know we have a lot of mutual respect towards David. Yeah, 100%. I, I love talking about codependency and mental health and self-care and all of those issues. And I know that this is a passion of yours, but as for the pivot coach uh, moniker, the name that I came up with, um, you know, I was really searching for a number of years about, you know, what my passion was, uh, what my purpose was. And I spent many years as a lawyer in New York and in Washington, DC. I was a founder of numerous companies, worked as a C-level executive at others and was really struggling to find happiness in my work, in my day-to-day. -day. Those, uh, those jobs were not getting me out of bed. They were, um, <laughs> they, they were keeping me up at night. 
they were uh, causing some havoc in my relationships. I mean, not the jobs per se, but my, my, who I was in those jobs. And, Mm -hmm. you know, if you're a lawyer in New York, you're a lawyer in Washington, DC, it's not an easy go of it. And I learned that the hard way. And so I found looking back that I was moving from one space to another. And I think I had a lot of judgment about myself. Like, why wasn't I succeeding? And that was really getting in the way of my success. And I opened my ears one day and uh, someone was talking to me about pivoting. And I thought, right, that's what I'm doing. I'm pivoting. I'm still finding my way. And there's a lot of wisdom um, that I can give to people who are looking to do the same. Maybe they feel stuck. They don't know what their purpose is. And so I'm a coach and I'm a podcast host and I've got some other business interests, but coaching and talking to people is the thing I love. So do you think there was an element of uh, imposter syndrome with what you were going through? I know I have a tendency when I was writing my first book, I got halfway through it. Then I shelved it because I thought no one's going to read it. It's not good enough. You know, maybe my story isn't tragic enough. You know, people really like to watch train wrecks apparently. And I just wasn't certain. And then I finally said, you know what? I'm not doing this for other people. I'm doing this for me. This is cathartic. This is therapeutic for me. I need to do this. I mean, did you go through some of those stages when you were making your pivot moves in your life? No question. Um, You know, my dad was a lawyer. He encouraged me to be a lawyer. I wanted to be a writer. That's what I felt I loved to do. And I felt Mm. that I was good at. But my parents were kind of like gently and not so gently nudging me in that direction. And I found a way to enjoy it. I found a way to be good at it. But yes, I did not feel like I was living my own life. I felt like I was living the life that others wanted for me and that I was trying to please them. And it was very confusing. During this time, did you have any any issues with substance abuse or any issues where you felt codependent on alcohol or anything like that? Because I know I went through that Mm. when I was having my... Even before my son died, um, I was having issues with alcoholism and it was career related because alcohol is so accepted in the investment world. And I just was curious if that was something you ever had to deal with as well. Um, You know, I look back and I definitely had a dependency on alcohol. Mm -hmm. It was um, it was the way that I was soothing myself. I would when I would think about being with other people and I had some social anxiety, I thought, well, I really can't show up until I'm two to three drinks in. That's what it's going yeah. to take in order for me yep. to even have a conversation yep. with anybody. And I convinced yep. myself that that was the fun version of me. And so there defi- that definitely was a, it had a role in my life. And it wasn't until around 2008, 2009 that I started to examine it a little bit more closely. And then shortly thereafter, I just, I said I was going to a therapist who is uh, in recovery and I, I felt, I felt safe. And I said, I, I have a relationship with alcohol. And mm-hmm. so we started to talk about it and he just said, well, what would it look like if you didn't drink? And so we kind mm-hmm. of batted that around for a little bit. And then one night I went out with a friend, I had one glass of wine and I said, that's it. And that has been it ever since six and a half years ago. Do you get pulled back into that? ever so often? Or do you, are you just kind of like, yeah, I don't miss it. You know, I don't miss it. I, I, I don't get pulled back in. There is an aspect of it that I, um, feel a slight little tug at or, around, yeah. um, 
at certain yeah. times, like if someone's having an incredible bottle of wine, I might kind of like smell it and experience it from that perspective. But when I think more deeply about it, I'm like, no, I'm good. Or if people are going out and having a drink, and I, I used to think that's how I needed to fit in, that, you know, you talk about codependency, I'm going to make them uncomfortable if I don't drink. Yeah. <laughs> right. And right. so, but I've drawn the line. I've not had a sip of alcohol in six and a half years, and I'm proud of that. And I'm mm -hmm. also aware that that could change. That at any point, yeah. I might just say, you know what? I think I might want to drink and I'll be okay with that because to me getting to this point is it took a lot of awareness, self-control, um, and just caring about myself in a different way. And, and, and I'm fully experiencing all the benefits of that. I think you're the first person I've talked to since I went on this journey that basically echoes what I have been saying the day I quit alcohol as well, is that I refuse to participate in the narrative. Woe is me. It's a battle. It's a fist fight. Alcohol's the demon. And I, I have to conquer it every day. I even say to myself in my book, I could have a drink today and I wouldn't torture myself. I just choose not to. I, I've taken it almost like I've, I've made out my alcohol issue like a bodily function, like, like stubbing your toe, like instead of making it some, some terror thing pulling at me every day, it's just something that just, it's a sensation, I guess, you know, mm -hmm. and I've been able, I've been able to just play these little games with, I'm not that smart. So I play these little games with me and you're the first one that said that I could have, you know, I quit drinking in six and a half years ago, but I could have a drink and I wouldn't beat myself up. And I think if more people, had a relationship with alcohol that didn't feel compelled to fight it all the time. I think more people could win. And I don't mean win as in never drinking, but just allowing yourself some boundaries. And I get it. There's certain people that, you know, they can't have a drink. They turn into Satan. I, I get that. Uh, it doesn't sound like you and I have that relationship. And I think millions of other people don't. Um, but I, I certainly think there are ways we can pivot, you know, with our choices, use your phrase, pivot coach. Uh, every day we make pivots like that. Some very subtle little twitches in our brain. Others, the act of grabbing a beer from the refrigerator, you know, that, that's a pivot. Hey, I'm not going to do that. So I love the name of your, of your group, the pivot coach, because it goes hand in hand with the choices network, uh, my nonprofit, because it's all about choices. And that's what a pivot really is, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's the, yeah, it's the freedom, the freedom to yeah. make new choices. We're constantly making them every day. And we don't even admit to right. that. We think I'm not even making a new choice. Yes, you are. You're making a choice every day. When you get out of bed, what, how are you going to drive to work? What are you going to eat for lunch? Those are all choices that you're making, but we don't have the awareness that we're even making those choices. And to your point about kind of how we regard alcohol or other substances, addictions. I think one of the reasons that you and I look at it the way that we do is because we're also doing other work. It where people are yep. making it so yep. hard for themselves yep. by going cold turkey and not supplementing it with anything, not reading books, right. not doing self, you know, personal development, meditation, yep. all the things that you yep. and I are doing. And so they're making right. that process harder. And then when they make it harder, 
It gives them an out, mm-hmm. right? That's why I failed because it's just too hard. No, you're, you're not even doing mm-hmm. the right things. You're not even giving yourself mm-hmm. a fighting chance. And so we could can just simply grow our awareness and know that we are the cause. We are the cause of the things that happen to us. And so that's what some, that some people don't even have that understanding, right? They don't have an understanding that they're, right. that they're a participant, that they're a co-creator or a full creator of their reality. How do you grow your awareness? For me, I use meditation. Meditation is a tool yeah, to grow my awareness. But it doesn't yeah. just have to be the Buddha sitting, right, with the idea that there are supposed to not be any thoughts. We can do it any number of ways. So recently, I suggested to someone who was having difficulty sitting down and being in meditation, I said, okay, go for a walk. Go for a walk and acknowledge and call out all of those things that you have an awareness about. So what does that look like? I'm taking a walk. I'm aware of the wind. I'm aware of the flowers. Mm -hmm. I'm aware of the Mm -hmm. dog barking, right? I'm aware of my footsteps. I'm aware, call out all of your awarenesses. And that's Mm -hmm. how we build the muscle around awareness, right? We actually have to have an intention. It doesn't just happen magically. Right. And we have to be consistent with it because it is building a muscle. And we could use a little bit of direction because if we have the idea that a lot of people have that you're supposed to go into thoughtlessness, that's not going to work. Yeah. That's what, what meditation yeah. is. I, I'm, I'm chuckling inside because I just posted a blog called Are You an Imposter on my Living on the Third website. And as I was navigating through the blog, I, I talked about, well, what's the solution? I've identified all these problems. You know, mental health is, is terrible. Depression's high. Anxiety uh, suicidal ideation, alcoholism, opioid overdoses, blah, blah, blah. What's the answer? And you know what word came to my mind immediately was attention. That word. So I thought, okay, well, let me, let me run with this. So I tried to paint a picture on my blog, John, that I think the answer to a lot of the problems we have in society is lack of the ability for us to be alone with ourselves. In other words, our biggest fear is us. And we can't sit and stare at a wall for, you know, 30 minutes like you and I can, but the average person can't do it for 30 seconds because their heart rate goes up, their anxiety goes up, they start flying off, and then they got to get up and go put on a football game or something. You and I can sit down and many people can. And again, meditation in and of itself has probably brought that word awareness to the forefront of my life. And so I can be driving my car mm-hmm. and I can be... I can be hyper aware and I'm not talking like my dad used to say court awareness when you're playing basketball, know where everyone is. I'm not talking about that type of awareness. I mean, I can be literally aware of the sensations on my arms. I can be aware of how many times I breathed in the last five or 10 seconds. You know, I can be aware of my heartbeat, you know, things that are very intimate, not just aware of it's whether it's a green light or a red light, but aware of really deep things. And I think this has really helped me when I'm sitting there, And I have a thought about my wife who just died four months ago, or I see something like I did a hundred times today in my house, a coffee mug where we had coffee together, you know, and I say, okay, here we go. That this is coming over me. I got to be aware, not, not, not repress it. I I don't want to shove that feeling away. I want it to come 
I want it to enter my body and I want it to leave, but I'm not going to make any judgments. I'm just going to watch. It has helped me deal with so much pain and I've learned to choose my suffering. And I think that's something I've learned from talking with you on your show was that there's an element of suffering that we can choose that can actually help us deal with grief and trauma. Would, would you agree with that? A hundred percent. And, you know, by the way, my condolences to you again, you've gone through a lot of difficulty, a lot of tragedy. And I, I just think you're so inspirational for talking about it because what do most of us want to do when that sort of tragedy is in our life? We want to put our head in the ground, shut Mm -hmm. out the rest of the world, not feel, which is what you're talking about is opening ourselves up to feeling, connecting with our body, connecting with our emotions. This is what meditation allows us to do. Awareness allows us to do because, and people say like, it's, it's, it's never been harder to focus on your awareness. And that's, that's probably true. But by the way, it's been difficult for thousands of years. This is why it was created thousands of years ago right? Whatever the circumstances were at the time, it was always difficult. This is the way our mind was devised to be a thought-making machine to distract us away from some of the feelings. And so, you know, people think, well, what, you know, I feel, I feel, uh, I feel angry. I feel, uh, uh, I feel like I'm misunderstood. (laughs) By the way, Mm -hmm. not a feeling, that's a thought, but we don't even know the difference Mm -hmm. anymore about what it is that our body's telling us and why that's important, right? We talk about things like, my gut tells me. Well, Mm -hmm. you only know that because you're aware of the sensation. Then it goes up to your brain and goes, oh, that's a thing. You might want to pay attention to this. And this is the sort of thing that meditation, the tool of meditation, allows us to connect to. And it takes a while. It doesn't just happen one time and you're like, cool, I know how to meditate or I've solved meditation. That's why it's called a practice. You continue to go at it as you develop it. You know, a lot of what we go through as human beings, uh, we somehow subscribe to the idea that these are abnormal, like feeling down and sad. It's like, I'm not supposed to feel. Yes, you are supposed to feel this way. That's your body warning you something is coming and you need to prepare for it. And Again, with meditation, reading, blogs, podcasts, being you know hosts and guests, uh, I have learned that I don't want to hold back that rush of feeling that I get at certain times during the day. And sometimes, man, I tell you, John, I'm sure you're the same way. It's overwhelming, and it can be overwhelming as in a wow, that is that's an awesome feeling. I feel like I am literally the luckiest human being on the planet. And then sometimes it's, how in the hell did I lose a son and a, and a wife in a five-year block of time when I was at the point of my life when I had it all, you know? And then I look back and I look at those two competing emotions, one of joy and one of sorrow, and I remind myself of the meditation word impermanence, knowing that both of those have a lifespan. Mm-hmm. Both of those feelings are going to die. And so... Again, why do I bring this up on every podcast? Why do I talk about this on every show that I'm on, like your show? Because I think it's important for people to develop that that quiver 
or tool tools tool a box of these ways that we can get through the day-to-day realities of being human. There, there's no, I, I hate the phrase mental illness, to be honest with you, John. I mean, isn't just being a human being mentally ill in the first place? Certainly feels like I mean, it. What, what human isn't mentally ill? That's right. Are, aren't we all? I mean, maybe, I'm not religious, but isn't that where religion can come in and say we're all, we're all, you know, made of sin or whatever the, the, the terms are. Um, I, I've never went down that road for me personally. It's just something I've never, I've never, um, entertained. And, uh, but I can see where I think, uh, we like to label things. I mean, I have attention deficit. So do you probably No, no successful person doesn't have some form of AD. I, I don't call it ADD anymore because the last D stands for disorder. And I hate that. Absolutely detest attention deficit disorder. Where, where the hell is that a disorder, man? I mean, this this is some of the stigma stuff that you and I have to start trying to break when we talk to people. And um, anyway, I just think being human is ripe with being having challenges and society calls them mental illnesses. I I tend to think it's just being human. Yeah, I mean, listen, we're all imperfect beings. And so from that place of imperfection, there are going to be challenges. And part of our work or our work on this plane is to work through those challenges, is to try to transcend and transform. So we all have work to do. And the brain has been evolving over millions of years. It used to be that we were trying to outrun big animals. Now we don't have right. to outrun big animals anymore, but it can feel that way, right? It can right. feel that way when we're alone and scared or there's been a tragedy that the fear comes over us and how do we try to control it? And so we do lose ourselves into, into our mental unhealth or whatever it is that you want to call it because we get lost in the mind. So just losing ourselves in the mind is an unhealthy experience because we're not present with our feelings anymore. We're not present with our emotions. That is who we really are. The thoughts, some of those were dropped into us as beliefs, right? Like, Jeff, mm. you're supposed to be this type of person or you're not supposed to right. be this type of person. John, you're going to be a lawyer. You're going to be a writer. You're not going to be an artist. You know, that stuff gets dropped into us. We adapt it. We make it our own. And then we forget that they weren't, it wasn't even ours to begin with. So you think, you think one of the issues, John, is that we have a tendency to identify too much with our thoughts. No question that we identify with our thoughts and we identify with an identity, right? Who are you? Are you a podcaster? Right. Are you an author? Are you a husband? Are you a father? And what happens if one of those legs changes? Then are you not Jeff anymore? Who are you? And so it's important for us to look at our look at our, how we're identifying ourselves. Why would we identify ourselves in any way other than as a human being? We do it to separate ourselves and we do it in service of the ego. Right? I'm bigger than you. Yep. I'm less than you. Right. Right. No, I, I like this where you're going with this because I wrote a chapter in my book called The Illusion of Self. And I, I it was a, to me it was an important chapter because I tried to navigate probably unsuccessfully uh, 
thoughts on free will and this this I, this issue that we have with identifying so much with this little machine walking around looking out this way and and kind of that bubble effect and and when you start really peeling back the layers you know what are you john i mean are you a podcaster are you an author are you a business coach you know what are you uh, and and again i think all of us at the end of the day i even wrote a blog once called what am i and i finally came down to figure out what i am and the answer was a storyteller that's what i felt like i was probably best at is a storyteller and again that doesn't really answer the question what am i because that's peripheral you know that's that's a perception of other people looking at me but i think that's a great exercise to play with yourself when you're writing on a piece of paper is what am i write down all the things that you are and then go through and say well, i'm not a podcaster I, i'm not i'm not just a dad you right. know i'm right. not just i'm not just i'm not a son I'm all these things. So what is all these things? Well, I'm a human being. I'm full of love. Right. Just a loving human yep. being that sometimes falls into judgment and struggle and suffering. And I have an awareness enough to know that that's not where I live. That's where I visit. And I try to share my my life's experiences with others and I try to get better every day. But yeah, I don't, ident listen, I started my career as a lawyer. Um, by all accounts, I had success. I was living in New York, um, where I'm from originally. One of my first clients was the Beatles, followed mm. by the estate of Jimi Hendrix and other, uh, other, other people you'd know. And, and then I went, uh, uh, after that, I went to uh, AOL, where I started their music uh, division and, and worked in business affairs. And so, you know, I had a certain identity. I didn't have an awareness enough or even the confidence or the self-esteem to know that I was bigger than the job. I was more than the work that I was doing. And that's the mistake that people make. I, they identify so much with their job. So what mm, happens uh, when you, people retire? They die. I was just going to say that. I was just going to say that. You know, I'm in the investment business. So I, I do for 32 years. I've owned a wealth management firm here in Cedar Rapids. I talk about this all the time. People that the successful retirement is a combination of the financial and the emotional aspects of of going into non-working part of your life. But I don't even, I don't even like the word retirement because it has the word tired in it. You know, I mean, it's just, it's a stupid word. I mean, I, I want to take take half the words we use to describe things and destroy them and rebuild them because most of the words we use are antiquated. They're just repeated. And even the word retirement is just a, a horrible word to use. Uh, now, what word you, would you replace? I don't know yet. I haven't found out one, but no, you, well, you bring up a lot of out, I'm taking it out of my vocabulary because I'm never going to retire. <laughs> Me neither. And I am. <laughs> I mean, I quit my job when my son died and. I, uh, I haven't seen a client in four years. I haven't sold the company, but I got people to take care of things. And I, I don't like that word retirement, um, but I don't like a lot of words that we use. So I'm going to ask you a question, but I'm going to take two answers away for you. It's going to be tough, though, to answer. Okay. If you look at all the statistics today, everything's through the roof. Like I said earlier, depression, mental health, illnesses, suicidal ideation, alcohol, blah, blah, blah. If you take social media and COVID off the table, so you can't use those as answers. 
why do you think the majority of people are simply at the end of the day unhappy with their lives? I think you already touched on it. We don't know who we are and we don't know how to be with ourselves or others. We struggle with our emotional well-being. We struggle with our feelings. And so we're constantly trying to distract ourselves into our phones, our substances, mm -hmm. into political fighting. If we yeah, could be yeah. okay with who we are right now and not live in the past, right? Which people do. I was, uh, someone offended me 20 years ago and I'm still pissed about it, right? Uh, uh, you know, mom and dad didn't pay enough attention to me and now I stopped talking to them. So I've severed my connections. And now I'm also anxious about the future. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen next year? You know, we're, we, we engage in catastrophic thinking. We're full of regret. That's, this is the problem. If we were living. And if, all those, all those things are, all those things are, um, preventable. They're things that we can manage and mitigate, you know, re regret too, is just a, an easy thing to, you know, I shouldn't say easy, but it's something you can expunge from yourself with practice. I know, I know we talked about this on your show because I talk about it at nauseum when I talk to people that are on similar wavelengths as me, but the idea of meta meditation has helped me substantially where I see a post or somebody puts a new business they started on LinkedIn and, and probably, and again, I have to guess 80% of people probably look at that and they have two things. Wow, that sucks. You know, I'm happy for John. I'm happy for Johnny got a $5 million deal with, with somebody, but man, that sucks because I wish that was me. And so that's kind of that imposter syndrome where you kind of feel like, well, I'm not worthy enough. But again, meta meditation teaches you to be genuinely happy for John. Hey, I'm I'm happy for John. I'm not just I'm not just saying that rhetorically when I'm talking to John. Hey, John, I'm happy for you. Bullshit. I'm really I'm jealous of you. That's what I am. But I can't say that, right? So I say I'm happy for you, but I know I know deep down I'm just burning with competitiveness because how did you do something better than me? Mm -hmm. And meta meditation got me to really practice on closing my eyes and thinking of someone that I I don't like, someone that is doing better than me that shoves it in my face, maybe not on purpose, but I get the impression that they're constantly bragging about how much better their son is or how much better their job is. And I said, okay, I'm happy for him. I'm general. And that, that letting that go is so damn liberating, John. It is so liberating to genuinely being happy for someone who does something that most people probably look at as making them miserable. I and could social not media is just the worst yeah. of that. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I love that you brought this up because we we think that we're not the same. We think that mm -hmm. we're disconnected. Um, we think that what I do doesn't matter to someone else. It all matters. Mm -hmm. Every step you take, every pebble in the pond has a ripple effect, right? Mm -hmm. And when we hold on to that toxicity, that competitiveness, which a lot of people think they need, but they don't, mm -hmm. the comparison. Well, we're taught that. 
we're taught that in sports. We're taught that in everything you watch. All the contests people are on the, even all the shows about singing and people win. It's like everything is so competitive that, you know, I think most people that say, hey, congratulations, they're not being genuine. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah, that's, that's exactly it. And so, so from that meta perspective of we're all connected, we're all human beings. We reside on this one place. We already know through the pandemic that literally somebody sneezes halfway around the world and the whole world can shut down. So if we didn't right. know it then, we know it now. And similarly, you don't think people don't think that they can affect others. This is also part right. of the mental illness problem. I'll tell you what, walk around, walk around your block, walk around your neighborhood, smile and ask people how they're doing. You'll change the whole neighborhood in one day. Oh, no question. No question. And I mean, I um, I met a gentleman. You probably know who he is. His name's uh, Mike Pierce. Uh, he goes by Antarctic Mike on LinkedIn. Uh, you really need to meet him. He's, he's a motivational speaker. He's flying around the country. He's one of the first um, humans, I think, there was nine of them, that ran a marathon on, on Antarctic. Uh, Antarctica, and then he ran a ultra or something like a 60 mile marathon. And he's only been like a handful of people in the world's ever done this. And he talks, he is an amazing human being. And I'll tell you why I've never met someone in my life that is more interested in learning about you than telling them about himself constantly. We were, I went to Omaha to watch him speak because I wanted to see him speak at a big conference of about a hundred CEOs. And on the way out, there's two police officers standing by this door. Now, this is just every day for Mike. And you'll appreciate this when you mentioned about walking around the neighborhood and smiling. And so Mike goes, I got to go talk to these two police officers, thank them for their service. And I'm like, well, I've, I've done that. I mean, sure, sure, you have too, John. You shake an armed services person's hand and say, thanks for your service. And then what do you do? You kind of walk away. We were there for 45 minutes talking to these cops. And one of them had a, uh, God, what was it? I can't remember. A, an addicted daughter to heroin. She mm -hmm. wasn't dead, but she was addicted. And the wife had overdosed on alcohol. And here's a police officer. Probably people are hating him because everyone hates police officers, unfortunately, today. Not, not me and not you, but a lot of people do. And he's battling all these things. He has to go out and and people probably spit in his face and protest and all that. And, and I got to sit there and I got to really see Mike at work. And I thought to myself, imagine if we all replicated that. Imagine if we all walked up to somebody and just said, Hey, I want to hear your story. I, I want to know about why you became a police officer. Not, not me telling you about my story. You know, it's like, I keep going off on more stories, but there was a incident where I was on the golf course the other day and I was talking to some uh, person and I always start off very casually. Hey, you know, how long, what grade is your son? And, you know, cause it's a mom or a dad. We have a kid out there playing golf. And I always, as a science experiment, want to see how long it is before they stop talking about themselves. And this one person I was with the other day went four holes. Now you're talking about 45 minutes on the golf course where they talked about them. I mean, I threw out a softball question. Hey, what grade is your son? 45 minutes later, she finally asked me, oh, by the way, what grade is your son in? Mm -hmm. And I did it as an experiment because that's the way most people are. And I don't think she realized 
how narcissistic it seemed. And she was right. Her son was great, all these great things. But it was like, we're missing something in our connection with human beings that we, we just don't ask enough questions about, hey, what's your story? I want to hear your story. So that whole thing about Mike was so important to me. And I've, I've tried to take that upon my day when I go to the store and I go places and spend that extra minute or two talking to people. It really helps me. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, for, for the, for the person you were talking to on the golf course, I think I also have compassion for him or her Mm. that maybe not a lot of people ask them about them. Right. And Mm, so it can just be an opportunity to be like, I'm so glad someone took an interest in me and is willing to listen. So that, you know, that's the other side of that. But I recently interviewed uh, a guy who's an ultra athlete. Uh, His name is Mickey Graia. He's Italian and he used to be a fashion model. He was a high fashion Mm. model. And his life was so empty that he almost killed himself brought himself to the edge of a window and considered jumping out, pulled himself back and decided that he needed to make some changes. And so he became an ultra runner and now holds multiple world records, including having run across the Atacama desert in Chile in a world record eight and a half days. It's six or 700 miles. He won bad water, he won, for, for those of you who don't know, it's like the hardest foot race in the world. And he was running in a race called the Moab 240. Now, the Moab 240 is Moab, Utah, 240 miles. So, you know, close wow. to three days of running. And he was running against a guy who is a legendary hard ass. And he ran, a, and he's like 60, 70 miles in. And he runs up to this guy and it's kind of like middle of the night and they're both, they've got their headlamps on and frankly, it's safer to run with someone, right? Middle of the desert, you know, middle of the night, he just says, Hey, do you mind if I just kind of like, you know, if I'm near you, right? And the guy just kind of shrugs. And, and so every time this guy, the hard ass, uh, starts running, Mickey starts running. Every time this hard ass starts walking, Mickey starts walking and he just mm. thinks, you know, I'm, I'm a human. I want human contact. I'm here to be with people. Yes, I'm in a race. Okay, whatever. We're both going to do our best. But we're not going to win this event at mile 75. There's 240 right. miles left to this thing. I'm just here to, to have an experience. And instead of this guy kind of allowing that, he turns on him, curses him out, is totally rude, and Mickey's thinking, well, shit, you know, I guess, you know, I, I guess everybody has a different experience. You know, this yeah, guy's really absolutely. trying to run a race. I'm trying to be with humans. And he, of course, he won. He won the event. Right. And, and everybody went crazy because this guy, other guy who's uh, a world class athlete was so rattled in a way by a human being trying to connect with him that he lost right. sight of what he was doing. Right. And it's very powerful. We, we, we have judgments about it. We think, well, we're, we're athletes. We're running a race. We're trying to beat the hell out of each other. Listen, man, that's not it. I mean, you're not in the middle of a boxing ring. You're just two people in the middle of the night, in the middle of the desert 
trying to survive this like ridiculous human, you know, push to take your body as far as it's going to go. How maybe you're in this thing for something other than you think. Maybe you're going to learn something from another human being. And I just thought, what a powerful experience. Well, Johan Hari, I think is his name, I think wrote a book. I want to say surviving the scream. I know it has the word scream in it. I read it about a year ago. He said the opposite of addiction is connectivity. Correct. And being, being connected with other human beings can get you out of addiction. And I didn't buy that when I first heard him say that on a Ted talk. And so I actually, because of that, bought his book and and read it. And it made sense to me. It really made sense to me. And as I navigate choices that I made, should I continue drinking? You know, should, should I try depression? Should I try, you know, suicide? Um, I realized that the more I connected with people, even just, you know, you're my second podcast today, John. And that's two hours of my life that has the weight of 10 years of benefit. Mm-hmm. And every time I do a podcast, I feel like I come out of it a better, a better man. And that is the beauty of learning and exploration. And instead of trying to escape a life of trauma, I'm exploring a life of hope. And I am at the best place I've ever been in my life emotionally. I cry every single day. I miss those, I miss Seth and Prudence beyond words. I mean, married 21 years and Yet, yet, I'm grateful for the years I had with them. And I'm living my inspired life for them. And so I tell everyone out there, no matter what you have going on, no matter how terrible you think your life is, not only is there always somebody out there that probably has it worse than you, that realistically there is, I guarantee it, but there's always a a new day. There's always a better way to look at things. I want to pivot quickly into something in, you like the way I sprinkled in the word pivot. (laughs) Um, You mentioned something a couple times on the information I was looking up on you about in regards to the corporate world. And you said winning the corporate culture. We've been talking a lot about individuality and dealing with individual issues. Let's segue into the rest of the show talking about businesses because that's where I think you do a lot of work in as, as a business and a, and a coach. Where do you see the word culture and how do you improve or enhance? I love that word, by the way. I absolutely love that word. I like it better in family. I like it better in team. Right. It's culture. Because families can be dysfunctional. Teams can be dysfunctional. But when a culture is up and running, it's unstoppable. So part of culture part of figuring out culture is figuring out what your values are, right? What are our values as a company? Mm -hmm. A company is made up of people, right? Right. And people, everyone has a different story, has a different backstory, has a different experience. And so we bring them together and we expect everybody to be rowing in the same direction just because they're getting a paycheck from the same company. Doesn't just happen that way. We have to be intentional. We have to be intentional with our values. We have to uh, not only state our culture, 
but make sure that the decisions that we're making, the way that we're everybody is working from the CEO down to the the lowest person on the totem pole is moving towards a common experience that is aligned with values and culture. When I mm-hmm. used to work for um, uh, law firms and I worked, I remember I worked at AOL and AOL was a, was a disaster in terms of culture. Not only was the new tech meeting the old media when it merged with uh, Time Warner and became AOL Time Warner. So they had a, you had a clash of cultures. Nobody knew how to integrate it, right? The upstarts were, you know, were doing things with their internet money, with their stock money. The guy who ran my division would, would, would speak every week about getting on his private jet. Yeah. Now, how is that? I, I don't have a private jet. Right. I don't either. Right. And, 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 and so how am I supposed to relate to you and how are you relating to me when you're, when the conversations are about, Oh, you flew out to some fabulous place over the weekend. You don't care about the business that much. You care about your private jet. Why are we talking about that in a business meeting? Right. And so if we're not vigilant, if we're not really bringing awareness and have a conscious leadership model, then things can go off the track quickly, even if we have a great product, right? Even if we have an amazing product, we can still fail because we're not communicating and we're not conscious of the culture and the values. So that's what I, that's what I talk to leaders about, CEOs, you know, COOs at that level, but I also work with teams of people within organizations to make sure that everybody understands what it is that we're doing and why we're doing it. I think some of the best businesses that I've either read books about, um, talk about, and I've always talked about too, when I built at at my peak, I had, I think I had nine full-time employees at my peak. So that's, that's a small business, but it's a lot of people. You have to be a chameleon from some, some, as some regards, um, we talked about the clock puncher mentality and trying to avoid people that come in. And it was funny because my business owner and I would, over the years, we'd get certain employees and it, man, I'd say at 401, they, they were, they were out the door and at, at 730, 729, they were in the, in the morning, they were there and, you know, they did, and I'm not being disparaging. They worked hard. They, they, they bought into everything, but it wasn't a culture for them. It was a job. It was a paycheck. And so over the years, I can honestly tell you, no one at my firm right now, and if my employees watched my podcast, which I doubt they do, no, I hope they do. Um, uh, I would have to think that many of them do things that I have no idea they're doing. They're coming in before they need to. They leave after they have, they, they're supposed to, you know, they're, they're paid. They never come in and said, Jeff, I worked an extra 10 hours this week. I want you to pay me. I've never had an employee do that, at least the ones that are still with us. And I think there's something to say about trying to find, as Jim Collins wrote about in Good to Great, and I'm sure you you read his book, um, instead of trying to find a job, uh, fill a job, you know, um, trying to find a human resource individual and you go out and you interview people. This square peg doesn't fit the round hole, you know. Jim Collins said, find great people and go make jobs for them. And I tell you what, my best employees, John, when I hired them, 
I didn't have a job for them. Some of many of them I couldn't afford them, but they were somebody I had to be around. They 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 were going to keep my ship from sinking, and they know who these people are. They're still with my firm. Um, I've never looked the hours they worked. I don't even know what I pay them. Something you know, a lot of times I have a business partner that handles a lot of this stuff. But where I'm going with all this is I think it's important to create that culture of trust, of authenticity, of being genuine. And having a love, compassionate relationship. And I really feel, and I'll be honest with you, when my son died, being the owner of a company saved my life in that regard. Having people work with me, not I don't work for them, they don't work for me. People work with me allowed me to do my grieving. And I never had to worry about anything at my company. Ever. Well, that's beautiful. And you clearly created that, right? It didn't just happen. It wasn't magic. Right. So there was an intention, whether it was conscious or unconscious, where you were showing up, maybe you were asking about people's lives, remembering birthdays, remembering, you know, uh, um, grieving with them for their losses. I mean, you were doing that before you knew you needed it. Right, And it's that sort of conscious leadership that we're talking about when you're a wholehearted person, as opposed to someone who just, you know, directs people around, doesn't give them room to grow, doesn't appreciate them, doesn't give them feedback. I mean, this is part of the problem is like, we don't train people well enough. We don't care about their well-being. We, we just put all sorts of unhealthy uh, um, I don't know, practices in place. And then we blame the people who work for us. Yeah. Right. Extreme ownership. It starts at the top. Yeah. Um, how important is delegation? I mean, it's the definition of scale. You cannot scale a business without delegating it. You can't, yeah. right. You can't possibly do everything on your own. And this is one of the things that I talk to people about and is on my website, pivotcoach.com, is we can't achieve transformation on our own. We cannot do this work in this life by ourselves. We don't live in a cave. Even those people who used to live in a cave were lived in a cave with others. And so we need to drop the idea that we're all lone wolves. Men think men do this more than women, right? It's part of our, in ourselves, right? We need to go out, you know, kill, bring it home, feed, you know, provide for the family, but we need more than that. And so we need to, especially as we're building a business, we need to train our replacements, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's huge. That's huge. Succession planning as a financial advisor in the, in, you know, managing people's wealth. It's like running, you mentioned your buddy or your friend or whoever that person was that won. I didn't know if he was a buddy or a friend, but you knew him. He didn't run that whole thing and then 100 yards from the finish line just stop. And that's what not doing your succession planning is. Right. You, you build all this great company up. You're doing all these flying around your private jet, whatever. And you just don't do your will. It's like, to me, that's mind boggling. And there's so many people out there that, 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 you know, how many lawyers die without a will? How many doctors die of cancer that was preventable? You know, 
They don't practice what they preach. So I'll give you something that just came up last night. So one of, we haven't really talked about this, but um, one of the things that really helped me in my journey was to, you know, in terms of meditation and ego work was to be part still part of a spiritual community out here in Los Angeles, not a religious, spiritual, right? Yeah. Meditation, that sort of thing. And we have a group of men who meet every week uh, uh, for about an hour and a half, two hours. And we connect over the, the teachings in the community. And we are, mm -hmm. it's, it's very intimate. And I've been doing this for years and I never knew that I needed it until I had it. Mm -hmm. And then I'm like, I can't live without this. But one of the right. guys talked about having a 100 year plan. And I was like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? And he's like, no, no, I need to have a plan for when I'm not here. I need to I like put a plan in place that reflects the work I've done while I'm here so that my energy and my good works continue well beyond my, my, my physical presence. And I was like, whoa. I like that. <laughs> I like that so much. I'm going to write a blog on that topic and I'm going to, I'm going to attribute it to you. Right on. <laughs> I love that. I, I love that a hundred year plan. I think we, again, we don't think that far ahead and, how many great businesses do you see just collapse at the end, like the person quitting the marathon, right? The last hundred feet. Um, I think that's important. You know, going back to the delegation question I, I, I threw out to you, I think that is kind of what ties everything together because I, I saw a very successful financial advisor gave a speech one time. This guy runs a, one of the largest RIAs in the country. And he said the key to a successful business owner is learning to delegate the knowledge, desire, and the time. So KDT. And what the way he phrased it was, if, if I, if, so here's what I presented to a client, John, if you were a prospective client, you said, well, why would I hire Jeff Johnston to manage my money? Kind of a setup question, right? I would say, well, if you have the knowledge, desire, and time to manage your money today and in the future as you get older, then you don't need me. But if you lack the knowledge, desire, or time, you can delegate that to me and my firm, my, my firm and I, and we can take care of that part for you. So I, I look at that little sales dialogue for people that are in sales. Mm -hmm. And when someone says, why should I hire your firm? If you can just instantly say knowledge, desire, and time, and then say, well, if you have all those three, then you don't need to hire me. So you just disarm them before the objection is really even presented. And But if you lack one of those, hypothetically, you're smart, John. You have the time. You just don't have the desire. Mm -hmm. You're busy coaching your kids. You're busy traveling in your yacht and flying across the country in your jet. I'll become the desire for you. That's what you're paying me to do. You have the knowledge and time. You keep that. Give me the desire. I love that technique in sales because it really gets people to bring that guard down and kind of get in the trenches about why you notice they never said I'm hiring you to make me money or I'm hiring you to save me on my fees or I'm hiring you to pay less in taxes. None of that came up. So I think that's an important dynamic we can use in our relationships, delegating knowledge, desire, and time, and then spending what you have left on this earth in the bubble of things that you want to do, like 
meditation or being with your your guy your things on uh, every once a week or reading or doing things that enrich your life and make you a better person. I love that uh, knowledge, desire, and time because we can increase our knowledge. We can maybe do some work around our desire, but time isn't up to us. Exactly. Right. And exactly. if you, you know, maybe you've got other obligations, maybe, you know, you are ill, uh, um, or maybe you just are in a rush to right. finally get your act together, which is awareness, right? <laughs> awareness, right? You need awareness. And so you come to work with a coach like me and I've got, you know, background in a bunch of areas as a lawyer, entrepreneur, et cetera, pivot, 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 pivot. And so I have that experience and knowledge that will allow you to get to the next place for yourself. Like you're talking about the work that you do two hours of podcasting today, because you figured out that this is the thing that lights you up. You didn't know this 10 right. years ago, but no. you know it now. Right. Right. And so part of that's part of the job is what lights you up. Now, if you can ask yourself those questions and answer them, then you probably don't need me. But it usually doesn't work that way. Right. Right. We need other people to 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 ask the right questions. That, that's what we do as coaches. You know, I learned this from David. I'm not an answer coach, but I am a question coach. And so I'm going to yeah. ask you questions that never even occurred to you. And we're going to try to get underneath where you are. Because the reason you are where you are is you created it. If you think that you can think yourself out of the thing that you created, best of luck to you. Let me know how it goes. And if it works really well, then maybe I'll be your client. But it usually doesn't happen that way. Yeah, I, I keep forgetting you and I met because of David. And... I'll have to, you'll have to remind me down the road because um, I'll probably forget again, but I just love his infectious personality, his, his, his optimism, his intensity with things. Um, he just started his radio show uh, a couple weeks ago and I was honored to be on his first show with his dad, which was unbelievable. His dad is just a, what I, what a, I can, I still told David, what the heck am I doing on your show, dude? Let's listen to your dad talk for the next hour. Um, but no, I think, I think. There's a lot of good that can come from all this. And, you know, unfortunately, to get to where you are, sometimes you have to go through the muck, as we talk about. And David went through it. He talks about his cocaine use. He talks about all of the stuff he went through in his early years. And it's framed him now. I think now that he's, you know, met the love of his life and uh, I'm happy for him. Uh, but it, it took a lot of work, right? I mean, it takes an incredible amount of work but work in the sense of like perseverance, grit, yeah. you know, this is the old undeterred, church. undeterred, living, undeterred. Un living undeterred. I mean, this is what, <laughs> what Churchill said, right? When you're going through hell, keep going. And the, and the thing right. is, is that we stop, we stop in the middle yeah. because it's too painful, right? It's too right. painful emotionally for us um, to continue on. And we don't know how we're doing. And that's why we need other people. Right. Right. And so, you know, listen, I love David. David's a mentor to me. You mentioned earlier that his focus is codependency. That's what that's kind of how he and I connected. And a lot of people don't know that codependency is like the biggest addiction that we have. And the idea right. is behind codependency is that 
we don't take care of our emotional well-being mm-hmm. and we try to please others or we are how we react and respond is because of how others react and respond. So in other words, I'm happy if you're happy. And if you're sad, I have to be sad. And parents say this all the time. The old saying is, and my, my mother certainly has said this a number of times. I think she's saying it less, but I'm only as happy as my most unhappy child. Yeah. Yeah. And what sort of a way is that to live? It's yeah, it's, it's, you're, you're allowing your emotions to be dictated by somebody else. And I think that's, that's an important thing that we need to work through. Hey, um, before we end the show, if somebody were to hire you, use your services, why don't you give them a little, a little pitch on what you do, um, and how you can help people maybe get to the next level. Thank you. And this has been a great conversation. I feel like this can go on and on. Um, I'm a certified master life coach who is working with people around their personal transformation to take them out of that part of their life that isn't working in their favor, to connect them with their passion and their purpose so that they can experience joy and happiness. And those issues may come up on a personal basis, can come up in your family, it can come up in work. Your process is your process. So it's not like you're super happy in one part of your life uh, and you're unhappy in another part of your life. You are unhappy in your life if that is your experience. And so my job is to create alignment, to create transformation, to get you to think about things that you haven't thought about before, but with goals in mind. And we help, I help people to work towards them. I have a client, uh, clients all over the world. I'm in-house coach at a couple of different companies. So I do that uh, in companies which are made of people, right? <laughs> people yeah. have issues, people have stories. But just in closing, I, did, I, I was brought to someone or someone was brought to me uh, who lives in Asia. And she's going through an experience because her brother died of an overdose. Now in that culture... Nobody wants to talk about their feelings. Nobody wants to talk about their experiences. Her dad wasn't talking to her. Her mom wasn't talking to her dad. They were both blaming her because of the role sometimes of the daughter in an Asian family culture. And she was despondent about it. And we did some quick work. We opened up some, some areas for her. And I, I talked to her today and she's never been happy in her, her, in her life. So these things can happen quickly. We just don't know where to look for the answers. And I help people find those answers. Well, I think there's certainly a need for what you do and, and what David does as well. Um, you know, I think, unfortunately, like in my business, there's lots of, you know, financial advisors that probably aren't the best reflection. We're really trying to change the industry. And you know, when I look at the life coaching industry, you know, I, I, I do see some individuals that, that I feel bad for you and David who are authentic and genuine and really doing what a life coach should do. And so I think if anyone's interested in talking to a life coach, I have, I feel confident that I vetted you twice now. I've been on your show. You've been on my show. And I, I'd be I'd be highly recommending you to go 
uh, if anyone's re- asking my opinion, uh, you know, you and David both are probably meet the specific different type of client, maybe the same client. I'm not sure. Uh, maybe it's a certain client in, in a, in a, in a situation or a cycle, but nonetheless, I think you guys do a great job and there's no question there's a need for your services. Um, and that's why the living undeterred brand and idea came into my head just in January of last year. So I'm not even been doing this for a year. I, and I just keep, it keeps growing and I, I don't even charge anything. And I'm like, there's obviously a need out there of people that need a pep talk and I, people that need to be talked off the ledge, you know? Uh, and I mean that not just metaphorically, but I mean it literally because mm-hmm. suicide rates suicide rates are the highest they've ever been. And some of the rates in the certain areas are, are jaw dropping. Uh, white middle-aged men is the highest year over year suicide rate in the country. So that's you and me, dude. Um, so it's like, you know, what can we do? What can a life coach do? What can living undeterred do? What can meditation do? You know, nothing in and of itself is going to do anything, but I think together mm-hmm. in that toolbox, in that toolkit, I think can help people get through the day and help deal with what life throws at them. And again, being human, there's no textbook, man. I mean, it's, yeah. no, it's I, a tough gig. It, it it's is a, a tough, tough gig. gig. And, and uh, you know, just before we end, I'll say that I run a free yeah. family support group. Uh, and so if you're interested, you can email me at john, J-O-N, at pivotcoach.com. And the family support group is for family members whose loved ones are struggling with their mental health and or addiction. Mm. Because as you can speak to, it's not just the person who's in addiction who's suffering. It's everyone around that person. And those are the people who, these are the first responders to addiction and mental health who get little or no attention. So I run a group, free group for that. Happy to talk to anybody, free, free discovery call to see whether we're compatible on the coaching side. Again, same email address. And yeah, a minute to help people, a minute to support people, a minute to learn from myself and grow. And I feel like I've done a lot of that with you today. And I'll have I'll have all your contact information on my sites as well. And again, I'm honored to have you on the show. And again, I was honored to be on your show. And I'm sure you and I will continue many more conversations. And uh, as I like to say every show, and I know you don't have this problem, but live undeterred. <laughs>